Welcome back to The Shed, everybody. Glad to see everyone here. We're live in The Shed. Very pleased. More than just thrilled, in fact, I think it's fair to say. Bowen Ma, who is the MLA for Lower Lawnsdale, also the Minister of State for Infrastructure, is our guest today. She's here, going to talk about a whole bunch of fun stuff. So sit down, get yourself a cup of coffee, get ready to enjoy yourself. Hey now. Well, I'll say first, welcome to the shed, because it's my shed. <laughs> well, I am impressed by this shed, I have to say. Well, you're one of uh, very few guests that actually sit in with us. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There's only a handful that have actually been in the shed. Yeah. So anyway, welcome, and a beautiful day. Did you... We sent the questions. I read the email. It wasn't really a list of questions. It was more like a very long email. It That's was fine. a very long email. <laughs> <laughs> said, I thought I was only going to have to take steam from them. I didn't really realize you're bringing in people for that now. I think when you were a manager, did you talk to your staff about getting concise and clear? And No. You know what? They talked to me. That's the truth. Your email was absolutely fine. And, and keep in mind that I'm in politics, so the yeah. emails we get are, oh. we get a lot longer emails uh, than that. And our responses get very, very long too, because a lot of the time there aren't simple answers for for the questions that people ask. So I will start by saying we're super pleased you could make it here. There are very few people that have come in here for probably a lot less positive reasons than we normally imagine. Like, (laughs) I'm not going to go get in a room with those idiots, no chance. (laughs) Um, Super pleased. And we hope you're going to have a good time. The reason we wanted you in is because you're representative, to me at least, of a whole type of politician that I want to see active. I think that your arrival in BC politics has made it easier for a bunch of other people like you, people who want to, let's just say, get stuff done, as opposed to play politics, people who are really focused on trying to serve their constituents. I think I've said this to you before, maybe not, but that's really what I want our vast listening audience to hear and especially to think about the next time they go to vote. Mm. We're going to be talking to the kind of person that I want to see people elect. Damn it. Is there a question in there, PJ? No, there wasn't. I'm, this is just, <laughs> I better look at the uh, questions. Cause... Oh, well, while you're looking, I have a text for you. Uh, this is from my um, sister-in-law in North Van and she says, please thank Ms. Ma for her service to our hood and country. Oh, that's very kind. I told her uh, you were coming today. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, you you were saying earlier, Pat, that can, can I call you Pat or do you want PJ? Like you, whatever's you're all, good, as long as right. it's not obviously pejorative. I'm <laughs> <laughs> you can be subtle about that, so everyone else gets the joke. As long as I don't, I'm good. <laughs> okay. I mean, you you said earlier, you know, um, want to get stuff done and not kind of meddle around in the politics of things. And one of the things that has been an adjustment for me moving from engineering into politics is coming to grips with how important the politics is mm. to getting things done. Mm. Uh, and it's it's really annoying and frustrating, but it is also the reality of, of kind of democratically elected governments. Like the politics matters a lot. And I think I'm still trying to figure out how best to navigate yeah. know, getting things done in that environment. I can easily imagine that. I did listen to your podcast with Christine Boyle, and you guys talked about that. I was very interested, especially in that part, because I'm sure lots of people just can't imagine how they would ever tolerate it. Lots of people probably think, I so don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys made it 
clear how you operate, which was great. That was a great series. The idea that you are constantly having your longer term goal in front of you as you face some shorter term irritation, yeah, that's a big deal. And I think it is important for anybody listening and considering whether they would ever run for office to think about stuff like that. But it's probably fair to say that there are people with good intentions on all sides of the political spectrum, people that truly believe in whatever uh, ideology or variants of mm-hmm. ideologies there are. And so like everybody, nobody gets to just have whatever they want, unless I guess, unless you have a clear majority and a lot of people on the same side. But generally speaking, it's it's a lot of needing to compromise, isn't it? And I would also say even when a political party has a clear majority with a lot of people on their side, having a lot of people on your side also means that you've got a lot of different people on your team and not any two people are going to be the same. And the larger your team, the broader the perspectives, the more diverse the perspectives, uh, which also means that you end up working out some of that compromising with within your own team as well. It is recognition of the value of being on a team. Mm. That That's really what it is. I mean, there are far, far more issues that members of the public care about than I have the capacity as an individual to know all the right answers on yeah. um, for, for, I mean, for any of it, but like for all of it, it would be impossible. And so you lean on the skills and the passions and the knowledge of your other team members. And it also means that you have to apply a, a quite a bit of trust in them as well. And there will be some disagreements. And when there are disagreements, then that's when we have to have those conversations. And when they say that they understand an issue that you don't understand, uh, that they've done the background and the research to come to the conclusion that they have, that you haven't had time to do on your own. So there's huh. lots of trust for sure. That kind of makes me think about David Eby. I guess an easy one would be just to ask you, tell us about David Eby. Like, he seems like a good guy, is he? I don't know. He is an awesome guy. And I have to say that when I was first considering making the leap from engineering into politics uh, and thinking, oh, man, there's no way I could do this. It's such a different world. Like, uh, and keeping and at the time, I was kind of thinking in my head, like all the things that people think of when they think of politicians, you know, they're all the same. They're all crooks. They're all liars. Like, I don't want to be like that and so forth. Um, And it was watching David Eby and his work that made me think well, maybe I can actually stay true to myself and and do politics differently because he's certainly been able to, to do it oh, differently. Oh, that's a pretty big endorsement. And a lot of the ways that I learned to become an MLA, like a, a lot of the approaches I've taken are actually based on David Eby and what I saw of the way that he interacted with his community in Vancouver, uh, Point Grey, and how he had set up, right down to how he set up his office. There are a lot of MLA and politician offices where you walk in and you're immediately greeted by a big wall. Mm. He had um, very deliberately set up his office so that you could walk from the front to the back all the way through without any barriers if you wanted to. So it was very, felt very, very open. And he also had set up his office in a way so that it could be used by the community for community purposes. So there was a community notice board. There was a seed exchange. There were like a book exchange. There was a, I I believe at the time he had a computer set up where community member who didn't have access to the internet or their own computer could use it to browse things, to print things off. So he had a lot of really fantastic, thoughtful 
elements mm-hmm. like that to his office. Not every MLA is able to have an open concept office the way that uh, David had and the way that I have uh, largely. So I don't blame particular politicians for setting up their offices however they want. It it does depend on the community. But I learned a lot about how to set up my office by watching David Eby. And he is someone that uh, I look up to, both literally (laughs) and figuratively. He is very, very tall. Um, you can probably get that sense from from the photographs yeah, and everything yeah. else, but when you meet him in person, it's like, yeah, you are you're very very tall. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I mean, not that it's a competition or that anybody's better or less than anybody else, but I could swear his bike is not e powered. So that is also very impressive. Um, he had a community office, mobile office, that was also a cargo bike, and it is not electrified. Yeah. And he used to ride that thing up to up the hill to UBC. Yeah, it's, I remember you remarking on that, and I saw a picture of it fairly recently, and I got a good look at the drivetrain, and I thought, whoa, that thing is not... They're heavy, right? It is a beast. Like, I mean, it, it is a big bike. <laughs> so I, I thought, oh boy, points to him. You know... Not that I think less of you for having power. In fact, I'm a bit ashamed that I drove over here today, but oh, wow. He was the main guy behind the recent changes at ICBC. Is that correct? So David Eby was given the um, thankless task of saving the Crown Corporation or fixing the Crown Corporation. And if you recall way back when, when we first formed government back in 2017, we kind of opened up all these books. And one of the books that we opened up was for ICBC. And it turns out its financial situation was just absolutely a disaster. It was described as a total dumpster fire. It was in far worse shape than the previous government had led the public to believe. And it was for a number of reasons. Uh, One of the big reasons was that the previous BC Liberal government used the Crown Corporation um, to help them balance the books in their general revenue. Yeah. So they were taking out money, uh, which arguably, you you know, I, I can see why a government would do that when the Crown Corporation is doing very well. well but they called it dividends because they treated it like, oh, this is a company that we're all shareholders in. Let's just take the dividends here. So the pro- I think it really became a problem when they did that when the Crown Corporation was not doing well and they exactly. still did that. Exactly. Brought it into deficit. And yeah. so... There was a lot of conversation, a lot of work behind kind of like, what do we do with this failing Crown Corporation? There were also, I would say, um, some people speculated that it was intentionally driven into the ground so that it could be privatized. It's the way it felt, yeah. We saw the value in trying to make it usable, really, and and EB led the very challenging job of transitioning it into the model that it is today. Right, and I, I think you called it thankless. I would kind of debate that a little bit. I mean, are, isn't the public in favor of the changes? Is it well appreciated or no? Because people have seen their... their uh premiums go down quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I described it as thankless because, you know, who who really gets riled up in, in politics to, to do automotive insurance, right? Oh, it's kind right. of like, yeah. here's this dumpster fire, go fix it. It's yeah. not... Well, you I would have said it was thankless because there's a couple of really powerful lobbies that yes. really were enjoying the status quo, particularly yes. lawyers. The, the legal, yeah. You, you're probably aware PJ and I used to work at ICBC. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you know the story and you know everything uh, uh, there. Oh, no, 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 not everything. Not everything, no. No, especially not be the behind the scenes stuff. And, and I think you've touched on that pretty well. So. Yeah. But your characterization of it is 
pretty accurate from my perception. I mean, it was definitely the intention of the Liberal government in the early 2000s to privatize. Hmm. And it would be, I think it would be a terribly thankful. I kind of don't know how that ever got done, truthfully. How's it playing out, though, in oh, public opinion? I don't, well, I was laughing when you were saying to people appreciate it, because my experience has always been, if there's one thing pretty much everybody in the province loves to do, it's hate ICBC. <laughs> Just doesn't matter what you do. They could give you a free car every year. People say, oh, I wanted a different car. You know, I, would, I just think people are not open to being happy with ICBC. Yeah. But you're really right. Don't. The premiums are significantly down. They're a lot They're less. way, way down. Yeah. Um, and the coverage from a medical perspective, way like it's way better now. But I mean, we knew when we were still there that the vast majority, like the whole deal was a balance between claims and premium. Pretty straightforward. And claims, you look where are the claims going, and they were really, really going to bodily injury. And bodily injury is really, really expensive because that's where everybody was getting lawyers every time. And there's a cycle to it when you when you sort of lose people's trust. When people begin to believe that the absolute necessary first step in any situation is to engage a lawyer, mm-hmm. you're never going to control those costs. And that's what was going on. That's absolutely it. And because ICBC insures every driver on the road, um, if someone in- lawyers up, ICBC effectively ends up having to cover the legal costs on both sides yeah. of the argument. Yes. And so through the process of studying this problem, it became clear that if you eliminated the legal costs from the system, you could actually provide enormously better care for everybody mm-hmm. at a way lower yeah. price. So. Yeah. You just needed to change the culture where you just pay out what people are owed so that they don't feel as though they need to litigate in order yeah, to access excellent. it. Yeah. Excellent. What you got there for questions there, PJ? I don't know. This is my mouth hanging open. I'm I, just trying to move I us can't. on from ICBC here. <laughs> please, <laughs> please. Oh, okay. Fine, I get fine, a lot fine. of that in the shed. In <laughs> ICBC? Yeah. I wonder why. Well, well, <laughs> you know, I will offer an anecdote that's related to the original way that you brought it up, which is sort of, you know, David Eby's role in it. He obviously um, had an enormous role in making the changes that ultimately allowed ICBC to stabilize and serve the public. But what's a little bit entertaining is that he did all of the work in the first term. And in the second term, after the fall of 2020 election, ICBC was actually moved into the um, Ministry of Public Safety Solicitor General. Oh, and so it's Mike Farnworth is the is the uh, <laughs> minister responsible now. And, and so, but also... It was after that when a lot of the premium reductions and then the, the rebate checks, they all came up after it switched over to Minister Farnworth. So <laughs> it, it was a pretty common joke that we would, you know, kind of turn to Mike and be like, thank you so much, Mike, for everything you did on ICBC with David right there. And he did like, <laughs> let me be clear. We, we thank Mike sincerely in order to try to remind yes. David that he yeah. had to do all of the hard yeah, yeah. work. But no, there, I mean, this is all in good fun. Going back to David, so I scrutinized, scrutinized your social media posts about what you want out of the next premiere. Mm. And it my my takeaway was that your number one, by far and away, most important issue for you is climate change. There are so many issues that are important to me in mm-hmm. this province. And a lot of those issues, I feel like any new leader that comes in to lead the new Democrats, they're likely going to be very excellent at most of them. Where I really want confidence 
because it's not always clear, is on someone's position on fossil fuel extraction. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is an ongoing conversation within our political party, as it can be in a lot of different political parties, you have a range of opinions on it, right? There are lots of economic benefits that can be argued for allowing different types of resource extractions in different communities. And it's, it's not something that's clear cut. And I think these things are very, very complicated. But for me personally, I feel very, very strongly that now is not the time for us to expand extraction of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that there are still uses for fossil fuels. Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely. not saying go out there and shut everything down. I'm saying like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be making things worse yeah. faster, you know. And it, it was important to me that I understood both where the next leader was going um, in, in their mindset on it, and also that I was transparent about where I stood yeah. on it. And well, so that's why. But then I read David Eby's uh, speech or remarks when he announced that he was going to run. I, I just wondered what you thought. Um, my sense, my, my general memory of his speech was that it was talked about throughout. And the, the importance of ensuring that we're, we're providing a future that, our, that yeah. our children can live in. But, I mean, it is also the case uh, that like, I'll, I'll also share that I did have many conversations with him about what was important to me, what was important yeah. to him, um, where we believed we could work together to get to where we need to go on the issues that are important to us. Um, I, we had probably half a dozen oh, uh, conversations good. before I decided to endorse him. And now, having said that, I mean, I've always been a huge fan of yeah. David, as, as I said earlier. I just felt that it was important for me to also have um, absolute confidence and do my my own due diligence, um, and have those conversations. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, so Bowen, you have transit in your portfolio that is... Right now? Yeah. Right now, technically, no. So I I did used to serve as the parliamentary secretary for TransLink. Okay. Um, and so obviously, I was uh, always talking with TransLink at that time. Right now, I'm the Minister of State for Infrastructure. Mm-hmm. My mandate specifically is around major capital infrastructure projects in the lower mainland. Oh, okay. Um, now, that being said, the delivery of those kinds of projects does include the delivery of transportation, public transit, and active transportation. But operationally, it's a little bit removed for me. Mm -hmm. But the delivery of the Surrey Langley Skytrain project, the delivery of the Broadway subway project, uh, pr the provision of bus rapid transit lanes on the George Massey Crossing Replacement Project. It, it is integrated in there. Is there anything, any discussions around high-speed trains down Cascadia? A actually, yes, absolutely. Um, through Premier John Horgan's office, my colleague Rick Glumack is one of the Premier's uh, advisors on relations with kind of the Cascadia states. And there are conversations and partnerships to investigate the possibility of a high-speed rail line that comes through those states and connects up here to, to British Columbia. It's still early days. And because it's an intra-jurisdictional conversation, it's being led out of the Premier's office, which is why I'm, I'm not super plugged in to it myself. I was just over in Europe, so, so I'm a big fan of high-speed trains. Yeah, it, it is pretty remarkable the train system in Europe. And I mean, they certainly do have the benefit of having a, a 
greater density of population they do. in city centers. They do, at the city centers, yeah. I mean, you're rolling through farmland mile after mile, but you're right, like the... The nodes that are being exactly. connected are, are, you know, Paris is around 13 million and it's amazing. And biking, Amsterdam and biking. Oh my God. Yeah. I was saying to Griffin, sorry, I know we're supposed to be interviewing you, but I'm just <laughs> going to hold forth here. I, I was saying to Griffin when we were over there in Amsterdam, how, well, yeah, but this is a really old city and, and these, all these narrow alleys lead themselves to making bike lanes and stuff. And he said, no, no, in the seventies, Amsterdam was terrible. I was just going to say they didn't yeah. always. That's right. Yeah, it took a lot of political will. And, That's and right. uh, yeah. exactly. you see those before and after pictures, Oof. somebody made real decisions that they just carried on with. Extremely and, difficult decisions that ended up being um, much better off in the long run. Yeah, yeah. And the flip side of it as well is if you imagine all of those people on bikes and on transit in their own cars, exactly. what that would be like, it would be like, how much road space would you need to accommodate that? So it would everybody be benefits. Yeah. 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 I read a thing the other day, somebody made a good point about, um, it's kind of all well and good to get us all into EVs. I'd love to, but really the better thing would be to become less car dependent because there isn't enough infrastructure and there aren't enough roads for everybody to have their own EV. Some form of mass transit that really serves everybody is sort of the dream, I think. I did have questions in here about that whole business with EVs, but there's a minister who has his whole thing being EVs. Bruce Ralston, he's the Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation. And yes, the electric vehicle rebates come out of his ministry and so forth. But there's a lot of crossover um, with the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure. And I mean, though my mandate particularly lists, you know, six line items that are around major capital, uh, multi-billion dollar infrastructure projects, as you can tell, my passion and a lot of the motivation that I have to be in politics is around climate action mm. and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so I am very involved in um, matters relating to active transportation, to enabling public transit usage, to driving down greenhouse gas emissions and the development of our Clean Transportation Action Plan, which includes elements of electric vehicle uptake. So so I'm happy to talk oh, good. Uh, about the issue. I just might not have all of the that's, details that that's you That's fine. I just just wanted, well, really everybody to know that it's not really your business, but if you have info that you can tell us, I just had questions. I mean, you know, I have friends, <laughs> unpredictably I'm enough. glad that you have friends. <laughs> yeah, That's really exactly. good. Unpredictably enough. <laughs> In some ways it's remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are sort of captive. You know, they're just, they're down to their last few guys. So it's me or nobody. Um <laughs> <laughs> Well, you want a dish. I mean. <laughs> no, but I mean, people at, at, you know, my friend Dale of North Vancouver, not a listener, his sister lives out in Langley and they wanted to get an EV, mm -hmm. live in a townhome complex, don't have enough service mm -hmm. for that. Electrical service, you mean? Yeah. And you sort of think, oh. Not even a, a drip charge? I don't know. Probably, but I guess they decided against because okay. the hours were wrong or something mm -hmm. like that. But the thing was, I just thought, oh, well, then to get it, they would have to upgrade the entire complex. And you have similar situations in neighborhoods where if everybody in a neighborhood decided they were going to get one, you know, the transformer and the pole, is it going to be adequate? And then you start thinking, well, what's our total capacity in this province? 
we used to back at some point in the foggy past sell electricity surplus. I don't know if we still do that, but do we have enough to charge? If everybody magically one day did have an EV, do we have enough capacity to charge them? And then if we had the capacity, but we don't have the distribution, who is going to, like, is there any kind of plan going forward for how we would ever manage distribution? Yeah, I mean, I would say a few things to that. One is um, we're not going to instantly have... <laughs> 100% electric vehicles out there. So yes, so there will be a period of time where we're building up and electrifying transportation. And at the same time, we will need to look at the questions that you've raised. Um, now, for most electric vehicle owners um, in urban centers, they'll be able to get by with a drip charge, mm. which is basically they're plugging their, their charger into a regular outlet. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's actually not that powerful of a draw. So for me, my partner and I, we share one electric vehicle, and he he drives for a restaurant, and I use my my electric bike. And in the city, because there's um, these electric vehicles have regenerative braking. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you're stopping and as you're braking, the more you're braking, you're actually, you're, you're regenerating your battery. And so when he goes out for a shift and he comes back, he will have lost a bit of charge, but it's easily recovered by just plugging it in overnight. It's actually quite rare doing city driving that we require a more powerful charger to charge up the vehicle more quickly. And then that's when you get your level two and your other high, your mm. high speed chargers as well. The high-speed chargers become more important when you're doing longer-distance travel. So if you're traveling from here out to, you know, Kelowna or Kamloops, you're probably going to need a charge in between. You probably don't want to wait, like, you know, 24 hours, or, hours yeah. or more for a drip charge. You want to get a quick charge, and in which case, that's where the fast chargers um, come into play. And, and they do draw an enormous amount of power very quickly. In terms of whether or not BC currently generates enough electricity to completely electrify the uh, transportation system. I don't have the numbers with me right now, but I don't believe we do. We will need to generate more. And the hope is that we'll be able to generate it through kind of a distributed generation system. So, I mean, Mm. you know, Site C was a really big dam, very controversial. It will generate a lot of electricity that will be used, but it also had a significant impact on the valley. You know, like there's a huge impact on the environment when you create a major dam. And so moving forward, as we're needing more electricity, hoping that, you know, maybe we can have, I don't know if every single rooftop in Vancouver had solar panels that were connected into the grid. And we were basically kind of collectively generating electricity like that is something that is um, I'm hoping we're going to be able to move towards more rather than the rather than more mega projects. Yeah, yeah. So when you say I'm hoping, is that something that you feel government is considering? They're they're looking at that view of a way forward. Before we formed government in 2017, during that election, we actually put forward a energy generation plan called uh, I think it was Power BC that was about hmm. distributed energy. Um, generation. So smaller projects all over the province feeding into the grid rather than one giant project. Site C wasn't 
our idea and it wasn't the project that we would have chosen if, if we had been there in the beginning. But Christy Clark at the time uh, made it very clear that she wanted to push it past the point of no return. Yeah. And you know what? She did it. I personally thought at the time that the point of no return would be basically the flooding of the valley. But turns out that the point of no return actually had more to do with how much money had been sunk into it and what it would take to actually pull out of the project and rehabilitate the land. And by the time we formed government and was able to actually review that project, it was a really hard decision for cabinet. I wasn't part of cabinet at the time, but I know that they really grappled with it. And the decision ultimately was we need to go ahead, but it wasn't a preferred, like we didn't, (laughs) We would have preferred not to be put in the position of making that decision. At that time, we would have preferred to have brought in Power BC, you know, before Site C started. So that plan was put on the back burner a bit because Site C kind of took up a lot of space in that conversation. Uh, But as we go forward and we need more electricity, I believe that that, I mean, it's still there. It'll probably need to be updated, of course, but the concept is, is still alive. Good. Good, good. I'm happy to hear that, I'll say. So the infrastructure projects in your area, Bowen, are they transportation only? They are. That's the one. Okay. So yes. you have about six of them? So I've got um, the George Massey Crossing Replacement Project. Oh, yes. Patello Bridge Replacement Project. Broadway Subway Project. Surrey Langley Skytrain. There's also a commitment to widen the Highway 1 out to Whatcom, and we're taking a look at how best to do that in a way that acknowledges the realities of induced demand. Right, exactly, yeah. uh, Encourages, you know, the right choices in terms of travel, but also acknowledges the importance of that highway from a goods movement perspective. Like, it's enormously important, right? And then uh, there's a general line item that's about future planning. So I'm involved in conversations around the UBC extension, um, North Shore Transit, that sort of thing. Let's be clear, highways are extremely important here in British Columbia, and a lot of communities are only connected by highways. They connect people and families to goods and services and, and goods to market. And because of the size of our province, you know, they become extremely important. They're necessary, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And there is so much economic activity that is dependent on these highways, uh, goods movement, as I as I noted. So we're going to need highways. As we look at the growth of the population, however, and how highways are used, we want to be smart about how we are improving them to make sure that they the improvements are long lasting, that they actually get us the outcomes that we're looking for, and that we're future-proofing them, you know, that we're not being blind to the realities that if we just keep widening the highway forever more into the future and get 20-lane highways because we want to get rid of congestion, like that that has been tried in areas all over the world. And we're learning very quickly that that's not a good way to go. So we got to be smarter about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we're trying to figure out is how do we be smart about improving the highway along that stretch? And also achieving what it is that we we need, which is, you know, um, reliable goods movement um, and a way to move people um, and services around in a reliable way. Right. Because I think the concept of induced demand is that when you widen all those lanes, then people go, actually, now I can live out in Langley and commute. So the next thing you know, that that highway just fills up again. So, yes, the concept of induced demand is that the more you 
the more space you provide for certain modes of transportation, the more of that type of travel you induce. All I know is every time I got a bigger desk, it filled up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, for helped. sure. Or like whenever I think that uh, if I find space for storage, that maybe I'll be able to organize better. And it no, I just it just all fills up as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why we've so far been looking at uh, improvements that prioritize electric vehicles and high occupancy vehicles um, and buses, because that's if there's going to be a growth in travel, we want it to be in those types of modes. Right. And while we're improving the highways, we're also incorporating a lot of active transportation improvements as well to help reconnect communities that are bisected by the highway. So a lot of the time you get like mm -hmm. a community, it's got a big highway going through it. And the community is trying to get people to walk and cycle more. But one of the big barriers is they can't cross the highway safely. Yep. And so we're taking the opportunity while we're improving this highway to really um, bolster the infrastructure we're providing to those kinds of modes as well. That's awesome. The other part of the improvement I would add is it's not just about what it is that we build, but how we build it and the land use around it. So out in the Fraser Valley in particular, we're taking a good hard look at the land use of the region, what the plans are for how the municipalities want to grow, and trying to find a way to integrate that land use into our transportation planning so that we're able to get more bang for our buck for what it is that we are building. Like if people are traveling shorter distances because they can go you know, a few blocks to go to the store instead of 20 kilometers to go to the store. Mm -hmm. So we're shortening the distances. Then even if they need infrastructure like the highway, um, we can actually serve a greater population with the same amount of capacity, you know. So mm -hmm. instead of serving a thousand 1,000 kilometer trips, maybe we're, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not going to do math on the fly, but I think you get the point. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. What people want to know is that they are going to be able to spend less time in traffic. And we, as a government, know that that takes more than simply adding more lanes. Mm -hmm. We can spend billions of dollars and just add more lanes, and people will probably still be stuck in traffic. Yeah. So how do we actually achieve the outcome of letting people live their lives in a way that requires less time now, stuck in traffic? Is a lot of that working with municipalities on like zoning and that kind of thing? Generally speaking... As a government, we want to better integrate transportation planning with land use. And we are taking a look at the Fraser Valley as an opportunity to work with municipalities and local governments to do that. We are further advanced on this concept on projects like the Surrey-Langley Skytrain. So we are on the Surrey-Langley Skytrain project. We are definitely working with local municipalities about density targets and the kinds of services we want to see around the Skytrain stations, the kind of transit-oriented development we want to do. So we're working very closely with them on that. On the highway project, it's still quite preliminary. We will have those conversations for sure. But with all of the flooding and the damage that was caused by the November storm events last year, um, that actually created a huge amount of flooding in the area and covered up Highway 1 right in some of the areas that we're talking about, like Whatcom was, mm -hmm. was underwater, mm -hmm. right? So we've always known that it's extremely important that when we do these improvements, we have to future-proof it. 
uh, we are now taking an extra hard look at what that means in the context of of the flooding that happened last year. Hmm. Owen, is uh, the Malahat Drive on your radar? Um, it is, but I'm less familiar with it. Um, well, I just had the the opportunity to commute like for four days straight in rush hour, and it is the biggest nightmare I've ever seen in hmm. my life. And it's the entire island, north to south, that goes into two lanes. And I'm thinking they have to do something. Like Victoria is expanding north, right? And people are commuting, and that's the only place they can build is north. And they need they need that to be bigger or something, or a mm-hmm. tunnel, or a ferry. Uh, or, north Shore goes first, for sure. Well, I, yeah, it's just. I, I just don't know where uh, priorities are in the province. I guess yeah. it comes with uh, population, right? The the Malahat is a bit outside my wheelhouse, so I won't speak to it specifically. But generally speaking, I would say that the importance of integrating land use with transportation is that if a municipality is sprawling, they will need more road infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And if they're more intentional about building complete communities where people can live close to where they work and close to where they shop, close to, you know, the schools and everything else, they'll need less road infrastructure. And land is oftentimes at a premium. And so um, those are the reasons why it's important to, to be mindful about how communities are building out and what kind of infrastructure is required to support it. Because, I mean, if you look at a dense place like the city of North Vancouver is a very, very dense municipality. If they had designed and built their municipality to require more roads to support the movement of people in and out of the community, there's not actually a lot of space to build those roads. I'd like to maybe address kind of the like transportation from, from this angle, which is that very few people drive because they enjoy driving <laughs> and spending a lot of time in their car stuck in traffic. Like, you don't really want to spend two, three hours a day commuting, right? It's like, that's not the goal. Yeah. We've, we've arrived at shocking revelation time in the yes. cast today. <laughs> <laughs> so why do transportation systems exist then, Right. It's because you're trying to get something, you're trying to get somewhere, you're trying to hang out with the people that you care about. In short, you're trying to access like a good uh, a service, uh, people, your place of work, a school, mm. and so forth. And so what happens if you put all of those things very close together, mm-hmm. where you can walk to the grocery store? And you can ride your bike down to down to Kevin's shack to hang out with him instead of getting shed, into the shed. Sorry, Come on. shed, shed. <laughs> instead of getting into the car and driving two hours away, right? Yeah. One of the mistakes that we have observed, and when I say we, I mean you know generally North America and around the topic of transportation is, you know, the roads are full of people trying to get to the things that they need to live their lives. And our solution is to take up more and more land to build more and more roads, rather than actually building the things that they are actually trying to access. People aren't actually trying to spend time on the road. They're trying to get to work. They're trying to get housing. So, and the more pavement, the less there's opportunities to put, say, a grocery store close to people's house. Yeah, yeah 
Exactly. Exactly. So. Right. So it means stay on the top side of the malahat, like leave the malahat like it is, but work on one side of it. Yeah. I mean, let me be clear again, because I don't know the details of the malahat in that community, and it's a little outside my wheelhouse, I'm not speaking on that specifically. There could be lots of reasons for what's happening. Um, and and lots of improvements that need to be made. But in general, yeah, Mob, like the idea would be make it so you don't need to go on the Malahat. Yeah. Make yeah, it so you yeah. can live your well, life without th- going back and forth in the stupid No, thing. No, that makes uh, complete sense. And it would be the same in the North Shore too, I guess. Make it so that you don't... A lot of the deal there is the people who provide service there can't afford to live there, I think. Yes. And yes. so then you get housing conversations. And housing's a hot topic, not just in the North Shore... But everywhere, same sort of thing. People are commuting because they can't afford to live in the locations they work in. Exactly, which is why transportation problems on the North Shore are intricately connected with housing affordability issues. The good news um, about that, on that front, is that for the first time in a long time, and some people say ever, the three North Shore municipalities are in agreement on, you know, the priority for the region, which is a rapid transit connection over the um, the Broad Inlet. I mean, for a long, long time. You're kidding me, seriously. That that they are working together through North Shore Connects and is based on the work that I did back in 2018 around the North Shore Transportation Planning Project. So INSTEP, the Integrated North Shore Transportation Planning Project, was an effort to bring the region and all of the different agencies responsible for transportation together on the same page. And it was a year-long project. It involved a lot of fact-finding and a lot of, um, you know, ground-truthing of what was happening (laughs) on the North Shore. And we got all the municipalities, their staff were working together with TransLink and the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure, and they produced this joint report known as the INSTEP report. And that report is now the basis for the North Shore Connects partnership. And the North Shore Connects partnership is the three municipalities and the two First Nations working together on like, what is the project um, and what are the priorities for the region in terms of transportation? And prior to this whole effort, you know, you had one municipality that wanted a Skytrain under the Burrard Inlet and another municipality that wanted a third car bridge um, and a third municipality that wanted a different car bridge somewhere else. And because there was no consensus in the region and each of our municipalities is relatively small, we're talking like tens of thousands of people, uh, how could they possibly be able to advocate as a subregion? You know, mm-hmm. like you can't even be on the same page. So, And the municipalities can't pay for infrastructure like that. They need to go to senior governments. But then if you're a senior government and you've got like three municipalities side by side, they all want a different thing and it's all multi-billion mm. dollars, then it's like, well, Shrug. you guys got to go sort yourselves yeah. out. So they are working together now. And it took a while. And it's a pretty precious thing that I'm hoping we can maintain through the next municipal election. Yeah, no Still kidding. too uh, early to talk about or to say where the crossing would be or anything like that. That's not decided yet? So once the local governments uh, were on the same page about what it was that they were advocating for and started teaming up, they uh, went to the mayor's council on TransLink and basically made the case for the North Shore to be considered for a rapid transit connection. Now, that table, uh, the mayor's council, consists of about 22 
different municipalities. So you can imagine that table, right? It's pretty complex. Like, it's like a one mayor or council representative from 22 different municipalities trying to come to an agreement as a team what the expansion plan for the region is going to be. Those well, are some pretty challenging conversations. At least Corrigan's not on it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no comment from me. I will leave that comment for you. you. Know, there's a lot of work to be done editing as it stands. <laughs> like, I don't really need you to pitch in more all the time. <laughs> he was the one crank. He was always against well, everything. Well, Although he probably had some good points at times. It was, you know what? I think that it would have been a very, these are challenging conversations generally. I mean, talk about compromising between yeah. one or two people. Imagine Imagine compromising between I, I 22 actually. very uh, likely type A, like, you know, men, yeah. <laughs> mostly men. Yeah. Who have to answer to their own municipalities. That's right. And I say men because it really, like in, in the lower mainland, there's only three women mayors yeah. right now. Two of them are on the North Shore, right? Wow. This, I tell you, I wish, I wish Shauna Sylvester had been elected in 2018, for God's sakes. And furthermore, yeah, more women. I don't care. I'm a hockey guy. Hockey guys hear this. More women. Because <laughs> just, we've tried lots of men so far. <clears throat> it's not working out that great. I, different style, different leadership styles. Different right? communication different styles. Different communication different styles. Different approaches. Styles. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I think I really seriously would like to see way more women in leadership positions, which is one of the reasons, again, to that podcast with Christine Boyle. Now there's people signing on with Christine's party municipally and I, and I read their stuff and I think, oh, yeah, okay, that's, I want that kind of person. I don't live in Vancouver, but that's what I want done here is mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Anyway. Yes. So they went as a unified voice to advocate for the North Shore to be next in terms of rapid transit. Now, what the Mayor's Council and TransLink ultimately Um, landed on is that if the region was to build one SkyTrain line every decade, because that's basically the rate at which SkyTrain lines are built. Cranking them out. It's just not fast enough, right, Mm -hmm. for the growth of the Mm -hmm. region. And so if we want to provide mass transit, public transit throughout the region, what is a faster way to provide that high quality, reliable transit? And they landed on the BRT concept, the bus rapid transit. Now, we don't have bus rapid transit right now. It's easily confused with the B-Line or the rapid bus, um, but it is not that. B-Line and the rapid bus are uh, lower forms of transit than the BRT would. What a BRT is, is basically a light rail transit system, but on wheels is effectively it. So completely dedicated uh, right-of-ways, really like Skookum stations, you know, like very comfortable stations. They have them in Europe. They have mm-hmm. them elsewhere, but not here in BC. Right. So that's the concept. And the idea is for what it costs to deliver a SkyTrain, you can deliver dozens mm. and dozens and dozens of these BRT lines and way, way faster. I think they had landed on it costing nearly I think it was over $200 million per kilometer of SkyTrain, but only $15 million per kilometer for BRT. Mm -hmm. So, And again, people think, well, but I'm going to have to stop for these long buses and wait for them. But the truth is there's going to be so many more people are moved by them that there is either fewer cars on the road or less congestion 
or fewer than there would have been yeah, would if have everybody... Been. Well, and plus, yeah. no doubt that $15 million per mile takes into consideration changes you'd have to make so you can go under or over the route for those for those things. You know what I mean? Like, it must consider a bunch of that. Yeah. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Of course, it, I mean, the cost will vary depending on the, yeah. the price of land in different areas, but that was the order of magnitude difference in cost. Yeah. And in terms of delivery... If a municipality was willing to uh, reallocate a lane for that, they, I mean, you could get it done in a couple of years, you know, um, for each line, as opposed to, I mean, Surrey Langley Skytrain will open 2028. We managed to cut the uh, the timeline back by two years. So, so we managed to accelerate it by two years by delivering it as one project rather than two. But it's been talked about since the early 2010s, you know. So imagine if if that was the timeline we were working with on every rapid transit project, we mm-hmm. would never get there. Yeah, it's kind of like a tram. It's just not on rails. That's right. Yeah, yeah And it would be electric? Oh, I mean, I guess it depends on the vehicles yeah. that you're purchasing. Yeah. Uh, Translink and BC Transit are both working on electrifying their fleets. But of course, uh, I mean, you had mentioned this, Pat, in your email about kind of the, the greenhouse gas emission of a of an electric vehicle versus a, a car. Uh, basically the footprint. The, the footprint, the carbon footprint yeah. of it. It is absolutely true that there's still a carbon footprint for yeah. an electric vehicle. And so um, it's not as simple as saying you take all of gas vehicles and scrap them all and replace them with all new electric vehicles and somehow we'll be better off because, I mean, yeah. there's already a carbon footprint to the vehicle itself. And so when it comes to the renewal of the fleet's for Translink and um, Transit as well, like they've got fleets that work right now that probably wouldn't be smart to scrap. Um, but as they're renewing, they're going to be replacing them. What else do we have? What else? Of course, we're thrilled that you're here. We really are. Like, this is really great for us. Not not because we're going to become famous or anything, but just because it's good to talk to somebody who has a real profile, real insight, real knowledge. And the few people that do listen to us will hear stuff worth hearing. But it made me wonder, like, you're a busy person. <laughs> and so why would you come here to talk to us? What Do you do this kind of thing? Do you go talk to people uh, like this all the time? Or? I wanted to see KJ's shed. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I can see that. Now you talk so, it. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. That's the draw. And wow, was it worth the trip out here? Is that a, like, is that an animal skin mask or i thought i saw a bear trap somewhere there's a weird wooden cat up there um there's a that's a weird mask wearing a canucks toque like what is this and there's a familiar looking guy in many of these photos (laughs) i think there's a, a candy house that looks about 20 years old Still made of candy. It's a butter bee house. Butter bee house. Yeah, no, it was worth the trip out here. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay, good, good. Well, I just thought I would find out a little. What. So, RJ, you and I, chopped liver. That's it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I know what the real draw is. I'm good with yeah, that. I've well, made peace with that. It's been the case through our whole history. KJ is a famous actor. He's the most famous product You've of our hometown. You've mentioned that. And so RJ and I just have to get used to living in his shadow. It's it's a bit of a burden for us. Yeah. But it is... All bought know. and paid for, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun being in here. And also all this stuff, it acts as a terrific sound damper. Yeah. Like it just, there's no echo in here at all, right? 
Yeah, the posters are especially impressive. There's also a, a chair hanging from the ceiling. I don't know how useful that is, but... That's for added guests. Added guests, all right. You never know, it might get crowded in here. <laughs> When's the last time you used it? We had it when Kroner was over, maybe. There used to be other chairs up there, too, but... How come you can put up with so much nonsense? I mean, yeah, okay, free food in the cafeteria, maybe, but, geez, I just... Well, there's not free food in the cafeteria. There's not? No, no, you got to pay for that food. <laughs> but it is a very reasonable price. If you're in the legislature, you there's a dining room, and a lot of people don't know that you, the public can eat in the dining room, the legislature dining room. And it's kind of like a dining room that... It's like a restaurant stuck in the 90s. It's still 1990s prices for a lot of things, and the decorations are very... Kind of appointed in like a 90s way. It's very charming. It's very charming. How's the food? Uh, it is okay. I like it because I find it charming. A lot of my colleagues are not super fond of, of it. Um, well, if you have to eat in the same place too long, yeah. no matter what, you're going to start not liking it. Yeah. They do change up the menu. They have a weekly menu. Um, I I am a big fan, I have to say. Like when... When you ask for a dessert menu, there's no dessert menu. They bring out like a board with, you know, the slices of all that's available oh, that's so you can nice. see it, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, very old school style. That is. Yeah. Well, PSA there, you can eat there. Prices are reasonable. It's not just for elected representatives. That's right. Yeah. That was a thing I did want to ask. I don't know if you have an answer. So if Mr. Eby does become our next premier, have you already told him what your primo plum job choice is and is he going to come across or do we have to talk oh to gosh you know you know um i think it was teddy roosevelt who had he said by far and away the best prize that life has to offer is the opportunity to work hard at work worth doing and that's all i want well that's certainly consistent with your entire presentation that i'm aware of and on that note it has been a real pleasure having you here I think it's been great. Great having you. Yeah, really, really a pleasure. Real privilege for us. I mean, I hope people do hear it. I hope because our audience is largely guys we grew up with in the interior. The interior? Oh, mm -hmm. wish I had known that because I actually just got back from a two-day tour of Highway 8 in the interior. Highway 8 connects Spences Bridge to Merritt. Oh, that's It was one that... taken out by the storms mm, yeah. last November. Mm-hmm. Oh, the whole highway yeah. disappeared. It just, just went, yeah. I mean, it wasn't quite the whole highway, but the damage was so severe that it was unusable. It, it remains to this day not fully connected. Yeah, I believe it. Um, the river, the amount of material that the Nicola River moved in those two days, you would normally expect to take decades or even hundreds of years. The Highway 8 runs right along the Nicola River. And in the last maybe 25 kilometers close to Spences Bridge, the washouts were just one after the other. Um, even today, there are vehicles stranded on segments of highway that are completely cut off from one another. ICBC had to actually um, deal with the vehicles. We had to airlift the people out. They just rode them off, I guess, yeah, probably. because they're not ac accessible. Um and there are segments of highway that are just hanging on the side of the mountain yeah. still today. Uh, so we're working to try to reconnect uh, the communities that have been stranded along there and uh, trying to figure out 
now doing the work of figuring out like the the hydrological and geotechnical conditions that might allow us to to rebuild it properly in the that in the whole near future. look forward conversation must be pretty active as you do that. You're looking at replacing most of a whole highway. Yes. So trying to figure out what's going to come and what's going to be the best way to plan for or accommodate that. That must be a lot. So I didn't realize this at the time until this tour. But uh, if you look up on Wikipedia, I think it says it's a 69 kilometer highway that was built in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, and what it really meant was that it was paved in the 1950s, 1960s, or something right, like that, right. it, because it wasn't really ever built as a highway. It started out as a game trail, became a walking trail, then a wagon trail wide enough to get a car down, and eventually was paved and called a highway. So you just kept dumping more fill. That's really all you would do. Eh? But it was never actually built as a highway, so it was on very silty sediment. Mm. And when the storm event came through, just ate through it like butter like Ooh. butter there and i i knew from the photos that the damage was significant but it wasn't until i actually got out there that i realized how significant the damage was in the context of what was there before because it used to be a relatively well vegetated valley bottom cottonwood trees and like a lot of green and now there's probably about like 25 kilometers of it which is basically barren wow just ate the works just barren and we had to rehabilitate the rivers by making them a bit deeper because so what happened was when the when the storm event came through took out the whole valley floor and what used to be maybe a five to 30 foot deep river became like a six inch to foot deep river because it, it yeah, the channel just, was significantly oh, right. wider. It just filled up, so now it's yeah. wide like crazy. And because it's very, very wide, temperatures are increasing. Right. And if the temperatures get too high, the fish can't live. If it's not deep enough, the fish can't come up. And so we've actually, uh, like the Ministry of Transportation Infrastructure, in trying to recover and reconnect the highway, um, just through phase one, as I noted, just uh, getting it reconnected, um, have had to narrow the channels in order to get more depth. So they, are they dredging? They must be. Uh, it's fill. Adding a lot of fill. Oh, right. And okay. just kind of... Sorry, the other way. Uh, yeah. And pushing the, the river yeah. to be more narrow. Uh, while while still maintaining the overall channel, because if there's another flood event, we gonna, we're going yeah. to need the space. But working also very, very closely with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and Environment to make sure that this is done properly, right? And that it's uh, done in a way that's advantageous to, to the fish habitat. And there were so many things that I learned from this um, that I didn't know before. Like, for instance, there were situations where in order to move the river a safe distance away from the reestablished highway, they would have to divert the water, the river, to a, to a new channel. So they would have to create a new channel and, and dredge mm. it and then work very, to very carefully redirect the river. And you got to be careful because you don't want to create a lot of turbidity in the water. That's also bad for the fish. Mm. And then when that river is diverted, you have to send teams out to salvage the fish, because you end up with fish that right. are flapping around. Um, so they've got to be collected and carefully moved back into the water to save them all. 
And one of the things I also learned was in areas where that river bottom is full of life, like maybe you have amphibians and all sorts of stuff, they'll actually send out teams at night to catch like these amphibians and rescue them all and put them back into the new river. And like, there's a whole process. Jeez. It's, um, uh, so yeah, I'm glad you, you brought up that you're about that in social media. I'm glad that came up. Well, it, everyone, there was a lot of focus on the Coquihalla and I understand why, because the Coquihalla has enormous economic implications when it's down. Highway eight is considered kind of a little side highway. Mm-hmm. It's only one lane in each direction. There's maybe 90 properties along there, uh, but there, it's extremely important to those properties. A lot of First Nations, um, indigenous reserves that are served by this road. And there is economic activity, less than the Coquihalla. But everyone focused on the Coquihalla when really it was it was Highway 8 that was just destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw some so. of those pictures and a lot of it just gone. You know, there's a little chunk hanging and then yeah, there's yeah. a big gap. And then the far right of the picture, there's another little chunk hanging and you just kind of think, it's just gone, you know. And But there's way more subscribers who travel to Coquihalla than travel oh absolutely so that's i guess again same thing would happen if highway three went like that's for us mm -hmm. that's the home country is on highway three if it goes you know people live along highway three care but that's about it yeah and let's be clear the the work to to reconnect highway five the coquihalla by by christmas was extraordinary that was pretty wild i was surprised that was so fast because the pictures there were pretty wild also like they were working around the clock the entire heavy construction industry stepped up to help reconnect that that highway Uh, we're extremely fortunate and grateful and uh, now the work um, carries on because it's still two lanes in some sections with lots of crossovers so work carries on to return it to a four lane configuration and then there will be additional work to make the permanent um, yeah. repairs. I haven't been up there since that all happened. The truck traffic has really recovered along the Coquihalla and the volumes are actually almost double today what they were back in like 2019. Yeah, I just How saw come? the numbers. It was remarkable. Economic activity. BC's booming. It's hard to figure out the way the economy has been, you know. And the rail lines are full. So Good. a lot of the... Uh, but I mean, I think that's why a lot of the growth has ended up on the highways. Oh, yeah. because the Cause that the, makes sense. Because the railway tracks are mm-hmm. a lot of uh, the goods movement along that is already at capacity. A lot of rights away still out there. <laughs> anyway, loved your podcast, People's Pod. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Highly recommended. Yeah, definitely. For kind of an insider's view of what it's like being in government both in your case as an MLA and a, and a minister and in Christine Boyle's case, municipal politics yeah. in uh, Vancouver. Fantastic. And also I was really impressed, like the quality of the sound and everything. I know it's not you two, it's your two producers, yeah. but just a quick little shout out to them. I think it's an amazingly, uh, amazingly done podcast. Yes. Kate Milbury and Liz Hunter. 
They're both single mothers. Uh-huh. Um, and that was their first podcast ever for both of them. Fantastic. Wow. So they figured out all of the tech and <laughs> oh. uh, all of the editing and they just, they figured it all out. We wanted to get uh, wow. someone to be an intern, but these days you can't have unpaid interns like the old days. <laughs> and and we still tried and nobody wanted to do yeah. it. So. <laughs> yeah, we were pretty taken aback. <laughs> well, there's a lot of jobs out there. Um, so oh, that's true, especially yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for staying so long. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So there, we finished. We kept her way too long. I'm sure we ruined other people's days and made ours. That was a great conversation. Really appreciate her coming. Hope you enjoyed that. If you've got questions or concerns, let us know. Have a look at the website to see links to the Christine Boyle podcast that Bonma did with Christine. People's Pod. And like I say, if you're looking down a slate of nominees the next time you're casting a vote someplace, look for somebody like that. Because those people are doing things and not just playing games. I'm telling you. That's it. Say goodnight, boys. Goodnight, boys. Goodnight, boys. Hey, it's also Buddy's first podcast. Welcome to YouTube, buddy. Welcome, buddy. Go get him. <laughs>